Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 36 of The Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy our show, we would really appreciate it if you give it a few seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. Check out our guides to great law firm website design and computer security available at lawyerist.com slash guides, or just click on guides at the top of the site. Use the coupon code PODCAST to get a 50% discount on your order. Just enter the word PODCAST into the checkout form. Sponsoring today's podcast is Ruby Receptionists. If you aren't already a customer, you should know that you would probably be happier if you were. Sign up for a free trial at callruby.com lawyerist, and Ruby will answer your phones for free for two weeks. So Robert Half just did a survey asking lawyers um, if they weren't practicing law, what would they do? And 16% said, I don't know. And 6% said, nothing other than being a lawyer. And 6% said, other. And 5% said, public service, which pretty much means like making law. And 13% said, academia, which I read to mean teaching law, which is to say that nearly 50% of lawyers, when asked what they might do other than practicing law, can't really think of anything else. Uh, I'm not, I don't think that's what it means. What I think it means is that law school actually does crush everyone's dreams. <laughs> everyone's dreams. <laughs> by the time you get out, you are incapable of dreaming anymore. Yeah, 6% can't even imagine something else. I mean, I have a long list of other things that I'd like to do, starting with superhero, but um, assuming there, there are jobs available in, in that field... Um, I think that's somewhat astonishing. And part of it is like, I mean, shouldn't shouldn't people be fantasizing about what else they might want to do with their lives? I don't know. Isn't that healthy? That's, yeah, so the one caveat here is that the survey was of Canadian lawyers. I think that's although, right. Although my hunch is that it's probably actually worse if you asked American lawyers right now, but I don't know that. Well, and what's interesting to me about this actually reflecting on my own experience in the legal world is that I know a lot of lawyers who are antsy to stop being lawyers. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the vast majority, it often feels like of lawyers who stop practicing law end up going into some sort of consulting where their clients are lawyers. Um, but really the rest of those people should probably have a better exit strategy than, just being a different kind of lawyer, I guess. Yeah, or you could just like become a law blogger and law podcaster, I suppose. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Hey, I, I mean I <laughs> speaking of law podcasters. Speaking of law podcasters, today's guest is an eminent legal technology guy, uh geek and uh, a very well-known law podcaster and I think you'll be excited to hear from him. That was so. a really good segue, wasn't it? That was a really good segue. Oh, I'm excited for this. Here's the podcast.
I'm Dennis Kennedy. Um, I'm sort of live two lives these days. Sort of the more public life that probably a lot of your listeners will know me for is my role in the the use of technology and the application of technology to the practice of law. So I write the the technology column for the ABA Journal. I've written books on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, collaboration tools. Uh, longtime blogger. I do a podcast with with Tom Tom Mile called the Kennedy Mile Report on legal technology. Been involved in ABA Tech Show. Uh, the ABA's Legal Technology Resource Center and a lot of things along those lines. So probably a lot of people have seen at least one of my articles on technology over the years. In my day job, I'm uh, a senior counsel, in-house counsel for, for MasterCard. Um, I'm part of the emerging payments uh, legal team at MasterCard, where we focus on sort of the newest payment technologies. Uh, so I'm involved uh, primarily in in mobile wallets, mobile applications, and uh, uh, what we're doing in the in the world of APIs. So um, I, I've actually found a good way to align my legal work and my in my legal practice with what my interests are. So you're kind of behind uh, Apple Pay and things when it comes to the, the compliance issues and the agreements and stuff like that, I imagine. Our, our group is. So I, I, I take a different part of that. But uh, yes, our, our group is definitely involved in that. Very cool. And when you, uh, when you write and speak and talk and podcast about technology, kind of what's the, what's the, the gist of what you're trying to accomplish with that or what, you know, what the focus of your interests? Why are you doing that? Well, it's something I realized I had a great facility for. I got asked, oh, probably about 20 years ago to to write a technology column for Lawyers Weekly USA and discovered I had a real facility for it and this ability to put uh, technology into terms that lawyers can understand. Uh, and... And I'm, and I found that I'm really good about it at that, and people really liked it. So I've, I've always gone in that direction. So I, I, again, I sort of have two approaches here. So, the things that really interest me are sort of more advanced technology, uh, the futurist stuff, the impact on the practice of law. But I'm also really good at talking about the practical technology things lawyers can can do in language that they they understand, which is what I do in the uh, the ABA journals column. So I always come at technology from the point of view of the practicing lawyer and what technology can be used easily to make your life simpler, easier, and to to help you provide the service that you want to uh, provide to your client. So I focus on the future and what's new in a lot of ways, but but I, I just try to keep it super practical. So we were going to talk about um, what uh, what automation and emerging technologies that allow us to automate routine tasks and stuff, what that means for lawyers. And I, I liked the way you put it. You used the word creativity. So tell me, explain what that means and, and why creativity even comes into play there. Well, I, I think that a lot of times lawyers forget what really motivated us in law school, the, the projects as lawyers we like to do really involve a lot of creativity. And I, I, it just seems like we forget that a lot. So I think if you, if you actually step back and say, here's the work I've done that I thought was really great, there's some amazing creativity. So I, I used to do tax law and estate planning work earlier in my career. 
And, you know, some of the favorite things I did were, you know, obtaining, you know, coming up with creative ways to uh, achieve discounts on a corporate valuation where nobody would expected that you could have and, and been successful, uh, you know, getting the IRS to uh, to agree to that. And, and so I, I think that when you say, well, what I like doing really involves a lot of creativity, you know, coming up with a great solution, that sort of thing. And I think that's where I get the energy and the most enjoyment out of the practice of law. And I think as I get older, it's sort of less and less that I like uh, the routine, repetitive things that, um, you know, I... I can still do pretty well, but I just don't get a lot of enjoyment. It's sort of like, give me a, the harder problem and let me be creative. And I think that at heart, if lawyers are honest with themselves, that amount of creativity is what kind of keeps them being a lawyer. It sounds like you're saying, hey, hold on a second. Let's take a step back and talk about what really is the work of a lawyer, what it, what it is legal work. And I, I remember reading very recently that um, – uh, at least one of the bigger firms argued that document review is not legal work. Um, it's not doesn't require a JD to do it, um, and they did that because they wanted to offshore their work to non-US JDs, and apparently were able to do that. Um, so maybe what you're saying is, hold on, let's look at what the work of a lawyer really is and what it needs to be. Right, and and I think even in the document review area, what I would say is, well, there's a lot of stuff that's totally repetitive that certainly can be done in an automated way. Um, but where the real value of a lawyer comes in is deciding, you know, how you make sense of that, um, how you take what you learn from that and turn it into arguments, into strategies, um, into offering judgment uh, to your client. And so I, you know, one of my mentors in, in law was always saying, what we're always looking for is good judgment. And and it's more and more, I think of that, because if I were hiring a lawyer myself, I really want to pay for their judgment. I don't really want to pay so much for them, you know, looking through a lot of documents. I want to get their judgment on whether my case is good, what the strategy is, how to work, whether it's something that should settle or not. Um, but I would like them to get the raw material uh, in a good, efficient way, which I think in some cases, automation can do, and then apply that. And that's where I see the value coming in, and that's where the fun and the creativity in practice law, practicing law comes in. You know, I, I was talking to a, um, one of these machine learning companies that, um, that essentially replaces a huge chunk of document review by just recognizing the text in the documents, learning what sorts of things you're looking for, categorizing it, and giving you a report. And that report looks exactly like what junior, you know, contract lawyers or document reviewers at, at a, any firm would produce. But it takes, once you've scanned in the documents, it takes five seconds to get that report out. And I think everything that happens in between um, you getting a load of documents and getting that report can happen in at least two ways. One of them is you can push a button and get the answer. And the other way that it could happen is you ship it off to a document review department and three months later, you get the answer. And the, 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 the long route may result in a lot more billables for you, but it's a really inefficient way to, to come up with a legal argument in the legal strategy. Well, and also your your time to react to and and to, you know, feedback create the feedback loop on that 
changes so drastically. So if you say, if I have a bunch of associates or contract lawyers looking at these documents, and I mean, I've seen, and I know people who've done that work, and to imagine that you're spending eight or 10 hours a day just, you know, flipping through documents with a stamper that you stamp that you've shown it, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really uh, a difficult job and and well, which is why computers are better at it than humans right and your your mind's <laughs> going to wander all day you know i mean it's, and so you say well this is terrible but if you say if i run the first pass at this with the machine learning and i get the results back and then i use my judgment and say wait this doesn't seem right uh maybe we need to tweak what we're doing a little bit let's spend another you know whatever it is five minutes to do a different run and slice it a different way what does that tell us? And then uh, maybe there's another way to slice and look at it. And by doing that in, you know, in a short period of time, we're able to get some insights, move forward, you know, make good use of that feedback, uh, figure out what we're going to do next instead of saying, oh, it already took us three months you know, to get these results back from document review. The client's already mad at how much you know, we're charging them. And we don't feel any closer to knowing what we're going to do in the strategy than we did at the beginning. So I, I think that sort of that acceleration and sort of, you know, it's in a sense, it's 80-20, it's sort of good enough, but it gives you, uh, you know, a quick basis to really start to, you know, exercise your, your legal, uh, you know, your legal brain power, your judgment, and bring into place your experience and expertise. So what are some of the things that can be um turned into automated or routine tasks or I guess that we can just employ uh, or engage a computer to do for us. I mean, document review, I think is start, if it isn't already a success story, it's going to be one soon where we've realized that about two thirds of that job is more effectively and more efficiently done by um, a computer. But I'm kind of wondering what else do you think is on that list of jobs that we should stop asking lawyers to do because it's inefficient and and we're not necessarily as good at it. Well, I agree with you on the on the document review. Once you start to see in more popular press that people uh, use document review as an example of where AI and automation are changing a profession. Now, whether it's as drastic a change and and you can really draw the you know the implications that uh, some of the some of those articles would say, I, I'm I'm not sure yet. But I I mean I look in a in a couple different areas because um, some of it just goes back to basic computing where you say. Um, Let's enter data once and use it many times. Because I, you know, I'm, I'm always in situations where it seems like I'm, uh, you know, it's just that they uh, filling out some medical forms where I know that I've filled out the same information a zillion times, you know, and it seems like there should be a way to use it. So I think in the law office as well, um, there are things like that where you say, let's do uh, the same way that you know when we go to an e-commerce site, people make us fill out you know, the database uh, forms for them by giving all this information. Maybe we can get on the online client intake, we get this information and then populate it throughout the system and then we're able to keep pulling from it. So mm -hmm. I, I think there's there's intake automation that's that's really interesting. So and a number of things on the on the back office. I don't know that you say Here's some things I can totally automate. Uh, I mean, I love document assembly, and and it's it's still striking to me the first time I put together document assembly application. 
uh, to do wills, trusts, and durable powers of attorney early in my career was 25 years ago now. Um, so, and and if still people don't use it in the way that I would expect. Now, I sort and although that does leave me with this, you know, that sort of like when the only tool you have is a hammer, you know, the whole world looks like a nail to you. Because every time something comes up to me where people are talking about templates or this sort of thing, I'm saying document assembly, document assembly. So, I I don't think we're doing enough there, but I think there's a lot that can happen there. And then using document uh, assembly as part of a a workflow process, you know, again, pulling from information you have, assembling things, generating different things. So I, I think that the process flow is an interesting place for automation. You and know, then, it seems to me that one of the problems with document assembly is that um, it's not that easy to do and everybody sort of has to do it on their own, right? Like it's one thing to say, I'm at a big firm and I'm going to, and we're going to have one standard form that we use for NDAs or, uh, or non-competes or, um, you know, uh, LLC formations or whatever. And we're going to de- develop the heck out of that form. But when you get down to the level of a solo or a very small firm who does a couple of uh, business formations a month, it's A, it's you have to do all that document assembly yourself. And B, it may not actually be all that efficient. I mean, it, it doesn't actually, you know, I... I n- am perfectly capable of automating documents, but in my own practice, I almost never bothered because it would have only saved me 30 seconds. Yeah, so I think you always have to have volume and, in a sense, simplicity or repeatability. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, the best thing is to identify where those things make sense. So I sort of have a couple principles on document assembly I always think about um, that have been part of my learning, is that I think when you say, what I want to do is find a way to generate the finished document you know, all at once, mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, I don't think you can win with that. So my goal was always to say, can I use document assembly in a way that generates a really good first draft? Um, and by taking the standard to that, uh, I think it can be really helpful. Although you still have to have volume and repeatability. Then I also think that there's this other piece of document assembly that in the ancient days, people used to call point and shoot document mm-hmm. assembly, where you'd say, I have this clause file, which, you know, a lot of lawyers think they have or have, but they don't really use. And if I can figure out a way so that, and whether that's using, you know, the the smart insertions, I've, I've lost the name of the top of my mind in Word or whatever, where I can go like, boom, I just, you know, use a hotkey or I click a menu option and I pull those standard clauses in and I can kind of assemble pieces of documents and other things on the fly to customize them because I do have repeatable components, even if I don't have repeatable documents. So if you said, I'm using document assembly, say for uh, you know, interrogatories or, uh, you know, that sort of thing in a litigation practice, you can say, oh, I could, I see how I uh, can assemble, use document assembly for the container of those questions. And if I could kind of point and shoot to the questions I want to in- include, then I'm going to have standard approaches. And that gives me that really good first draft mm-hmm. that I then I can work with. And I know I have all the basic stuff. So then instead of saying, have I included all 30 of these questions or have I remembered everything that should go in here based on my memory? It's all in there and you look through it and you say, oh, in this case, you know what? We need to ask this. We need to do this. And then then I think you're adding the value and uh, turning it from a routine exercise into something that's actually creative for you and, and helpful for the client. 
So, so why is it that we're still talking about this though? Like, why why isn't it more widely used, and and why can't we say, okay, it's just a tool like any other, and um, yeah, of course, lawyers should use it, and and they are. I mean, what what's standing between those those points? Jeez, I gotta tell you, I have no idea because I was, <laughs> you know, I was for for twenty twenty five years ago when I was doing document assembly, I thought I was so far behind the times. There's just an idea that made so much sense when I, you know, in 1995, uh, I was one of the first lawyers with the with the web page, and I thought I had missed the whole internet thing. And so now I hear people, I you know, I had a conversation even yesterday where somebody was saying, I don't understand why lawyers don't get this, and and he was demoing something to me that. Uh, back in the days when I did estate planning, I would have bought it in a second. It, it just made so much sense. And he was just telling me how difficult it is for lawyers to do that. And so what he felt, I mean, his insight into it was that lawyers are so busy and there's such drive on the billable hour that they have you know, literally no time to think. And as I always said, no time to take the chance that the routines that you've established to kind of keep your life in order, you don't want to try something new that's going to make things worse. So well, you sort of stick with what you know. And, and I think that becomes a big piece of, of it. And otherwise, I just... I just don't know because so many. I just see so many technologies that simply and easily would would help lawyers so much. Well, and I'll offer one possibility, which is I think um, part of it is the fear of uh, volume, right? Because if I if I automate all of the tedious BS that I have to do in a typical uh, client matter, then that probably cuts the amount I'm able to bill that client or charge that client. It, it might not cut it in half. It might cut it by a third, might cut it by a half. It might cut it down to a third. Um, and so now I've got to go f- scare up more clients. And now I've got a marketing problem because the idea of bringing in two or three times as many clients is really intimidating. Uh, and it, it does require me to set up my firm a little bit differently because I need to be sure that I can give them all the same sort of top-notch service I want to give. And so I wonder if part of it is just that Lawyers really don't want to go from, um, you know, from a very personal services to a volume services model. Those those feel very different, and volume kind of has a bad name in the, in the legal industry. Yeah, I mean, so there's that fear of success element clearly, mm-hmm. and then if you also say that if you look at you know people who have who do startups, small successful small businesses, they always talk about the point where they reach the point where basically the business starts to run itself and they can take vacations and they can play golf and and that's the sort of success that they want. And it seems like over the years, lawyers have measured success and their ability in a way and how good a lawyer they are by the amount of hours that they do. So, hmm. um, you know, so, so that creates that, that sort of weird distortion. Um, but, yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, I don't, I always kind of um, uh, resist comparing small law practices or any law practices to startups because I think there's some fundamentally different things going on. But you make a really good point that, um, being a solo lawyer or a small firm lawyer is not very scalable. And if it's not scalable, then how do you ever crawl out of that sort of trough of revenue numbers from like the, you know, the salary distribution curve where most of us are making 40 to 65 grand a year? 
Um, if you have no way to, to make more money while working the same or less time, then you can't ever get out of that and take a vacation or afford to take one. <laughs> right, right. And, and that's where I think automation can be kind of interesting because if you say, I do some things that get automated um, and and I can do volume, both volume and I can do more for clients. So mm-hmm. I, I used to do a thing with document assembly where I generate not only the drafts of wills, but the, the drafts of the summary at the same time. And I couldn't, you know, the technology wasn't there at the time, but we, we'd also do like a chart, which the clients loved. And, you know, you'll get a laugh out of the same. This is done like an, you know, like a Mac SE, you know, and Mac draw mm-hmm. with like little thin lines. And people just thought it was the most amazing thing. You know, they were drawing <laughs> squares with, with lines connecting them. So you say, if, if I can automate some of those things and do some value adds um, and then, Maybe figure out a service that is more like a subscription model, you know, where someone gets used to saying, oh, I have my annual business checkup. I, I, I have my estate planning checkup. I, you know, I do those things where there's contact with the lawyer and maybe even, you know, like an annual fee or, you know, subscription type fee, you know, where you can call the lawyer whenever you want, that sort of thing. Um, then for the long, if you have the long-term clientele or the people who might have ongoing work, that becomes a model that might sustain you. And then you can automate pieces of it because I think, you know, traditionally people have used paralegals and stuff to do what I've called automation. Cause I, I sort of think that the, the automation, uh, computer automation is, is delegating the work that computers should be doing to the computers and not, right. not keeping it to yourself. So I, I think that, um, you know, part of the automation thing is to think, well, what can I, what can I do? Um, and there, there's certainly areas of practice that lend itself more to this than others, but what can I do that kind of gets people willingly coming in on a regular basis and paying me where I actually provide additional value and do stuff that's that's fun to do for me that kind of really fit what I like doing instead of saying, you know, oh, I need to uh, just keep doing the same things over and over again. Uh, and I can't delegate anything because I don't trust anybody. So I'm, you know, I'm still filing standard forms and running documents to court myself because I can't trust anybody. And I suppose uh, it, it's worth emphasizing here that um, I think what we're talking about, what you're talking about and is sort of that we we believe that there is another way to practice law and serve clients that can give the clients a high quality product um, without requiring lawyers to sell basically their time and attention to everything from licking stamps to drafting um, pleadings and contracts and coming up with legal strategy. There's a way to sort of approach it from a different angle and still provide that high quality of service, but cut out a lot of the time-consuming, ex- expensively time-consuming stuff uh, and uh, and give a more affordable product with the same sort of quality. It's not, uh, it's not about creating a lifestyle law practice, which is what some of the naysayers um, seem to think, is that what we're talking about is building a law practice around you know, what, whatever I want to do with my day instead of around my clients. Yeah. So 
when I was practicing on my own before I went to, to MasterCard, I had this, uh, I went out to a client's office, uh, which was sort of the cool thing about practicing from home that I don't think people realize is mm-hmm. that when you, is because is, you don't want people coming to your house for a meeting, obviously. But so what you say is, hey, here's what I do when there's a meeting. I come out to your office. And by the way, I'm going to spend time if you want to show me around and I'm not going to charge you for that. So I went out there and I talked to somebody, uh, a new client at the, their offices and we talked through what they needed. So, so it was a you know a new company. They had a website and you know sort of standard website documents they needed. And we got you know to the end, and they they said, "Oh, I know. All you do is press a button on this stuff anyway." You know, and and everybody laughed. You know, it was a joke. And then on the way home, I'm going, "You know what? That actually that comment." is is real the expectation is that i can press a button to do that and that technically i could so if i send somebody say here's documents that you bought that are whatever twenty five hundred dollars something like that and they think all i've done is press a button then they're going to form one opinion of me if i say hey can i come up with something that says these standard docs are free Mm -hmm. but you know, what what we do is an ongoing, you know, advice and counseling relationship that you're paying me for. But well, it's that's, interesting that's that you say that because I, yeah. I, I did that for a couple of years and I think I proved the concept that it totally works. Um, I had a I had a menu of documents that were included as long as you were paying me a monthly fee to to be, you know, my client. And um and it and I made sure to have coffee with all of my clients a couple times a year at a minimum, and I made my conference room available to them so that I could meet the rest of the board and the owners and the shareholders, and so that I could meet their investors. And um, I think I proved that it really, really does work, and it it's a totally different perspective than just fixing problems once your client brings them to you at an hourly rate. So. Yeah, and if you have a business client, I think they really appreciate a lawyer who goes out of their way to understand their business. And so that's why I also like to do is like say, hey, you know, clock is turned off. Uh, I want to learn some of the technology you guys are using just because I'm interested in that. And you seem like the people to learn it from. And the better I understand what it's doing. And in the area of law, I mean, this is always the case. The more I understand the underlying technology, the better a job I can do as, as a lawyer. Well, and the more work that you will find out that you need to do that you can charge for. <laughs> right. Um, somebody says, yeah, you're right. So somebody says, oh, I just need standard terms of use, privacy policy, I have a website. You, then you'd say, okay, well, uh, where'd you get your artwork from? How are you doing this? What's your, you know, do you have an agreement with the designer of the site? Who owns the domain name? And uh, and because like, I think you probably found out if you're saying, oh, those basic documents are free, then people are saying, oh, oh my God, you're right. Yeah, I want you to check into those things for me and, and I will pay you to review the other things that I have in place. And then you'll find instead of being like a one-time two documents thing, you're going to have a, a, a relationship where you grow with that business. Mm-hmm. So so let's say we've piqued somebody's interest in um either automating some of their processes or trying to trying to stop charging for routine tasks or maybe just take a different perspective. I mean, how does your typical solo or small firm lawyer start rejiggering their practice? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's one of those things where you want to look at some of the models out there that have, have worked. Take some time to, uh, 
you know, because usually the people who've tried this stuff, I mean, you know, I, I think the people who've done, you know, virtual law firm, Chad Burton, some of the stuff you've done and talked about, there are other people, Matt Homa and other people like that. Uh, the good thing about everybody who's done this stuff is they're evangelists. They, they love what they've accomplished and they're always patient in answering questions, at least so far. I mean, at some point they may get overwhelmed and all of that. But, but I think <laughs> that if you say, hey, there are people out there and, and I'm really interested in what they're doing, then, uh, then talk to them, you know, and, and, you know, ask questions. And a lot of people write articles with a lot of detail about how they're actually doing things. And so you can, you can look at some of those ideas. And then, then I think that it's, it also comes back to the thing that lawyers always hate to do, which is to ask your client what might actually help them. You yeah. know, that, that's the step where I see so many lawyers um, stop is they, they get inspired by listening to Matt or Chad or, or, or anyone talk about um, alternative fees or alternative ways to, uh, to work with clients. And then they offer their clients the option. You know, if you want to do this, we can do it this way or you can do it the regular way that we've always done it. And the client is almost always going to say, well, I guess I'd, I'm more comfortable just doing it the way we've always done it. And, and right. to me, you kind of have to sell your new experimental model to your clients, too. You have to go to your client and say, look, I'd like you to ride along with me on this. Um, I want to try this. Um, I, I want to structure the billing arrangement this way, and I want to do it for three months. Um, and if at the end of that three months it's been a disaster from your perspective, then we'll both sit down and take a look at the bill together and figure out how to fix it. Um, if it seem, but I'd, I want I want your feedback either way. Um, if you're really happy with it, then maybe we can continue it. But it's an experiment I need to do on a real case, and so I'd like you to do it with me. And your best clients are going to say, of course. Right, and I think if you say that's the place where I think you can do something like a you know a guarantee or something like that where you say, hey, mm -hmm. look, we'll try this, and no matter what, you're not going to pay more than this. You will not pay more than if we did it the other way. There's, or, you or know, you you yeah. give your client uh, uh, Aaron Hall we had on recently, and one of the things that he does is he lets his clients write down any bill. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's on the invoice. It's there's there are two columns. There's here's what the bill is, and here's what you're going to pay. And so he lets them go ahead and do it, and he, and almost none of them have taken advantage of it because they wanted the choice. And having ha having the choice is what really means something to them. And once they have it, they're happy to pay the bill. And and I think it's also that communication of value because I I read more and more about this thing that uh, and I'm more familiar with being in the corporate world where you know a lot of uh, clients, big clients, will not let you know multiple lawyers work on the same case. They mm -hmm. say we won't we won't pay for conferences between lawyers, that sort of thing. And I'm like you know that's that's really a problem with the pricing thing and uh, you know a lack of communication about value because if you do get a number of lawyers with experience into the same room and they bounce ideas off of each other, you're probably going to pay less in the long run for better results. And, and this sort of arbitrary thing of we won't pay for that conversation sort of really goes against what I think, you know, creative, collaborative lawyering is and probably hurts clients who take that approach. But the fact is that, that the lawyers who are under those rules haven't been able to communicate value on that. Well, and that brings up some interesting points about just communicating about fees. Like we, 
lawyers, but everybody needs to be less shy about talking about fees, right? I mean, it's we, we have to charge for what we do. Nobody should be ashamed of that. And if you're ashamed of your price, then maybe you're charging too much. But generally, you if it's what if it's the right cost, then you should talk about it. And you can talk about it with your clients. And you can talk about it with your clients more than you're currently talking about it with them. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see lawyers having more conversations about money with their clients because then you have those conversations like, I think we need to do this and here is how much it's going to cost instead of a client who just doesn't find out about it until they get your bill. And plus, if you have those conversations up front, you're not going to be collecting from your clients nearly as much. Right. And, and I also think that that also brings back that sort of judgment and experience thing. Because I always, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember, uh, or, I mean, it's still around, but there's a, a program called Case Map, which really lets lawyers lay out cases in a way that's very helpful, you know, cast of characters, issues, and you can really analyze your strong arguments, weak arguments, that sort of thing. And you can run a report on that. And they, that to me was like the most amazing thing because I said, boy, if I had litigation, uh, which I don't do in my work at, at MasterCard, but if I had a bunch of cases, I would love to get the, the all that information put into case map, run those reports, and take that lawyer who I count on and and hand them that stuff and say, I'm going to pay you a ridiculous amount of money to use your judgment and assess those cases and tell me these are good, these are bad, these need to go to litigation, these need to settle, and and give me that assessment versus what I think you're doing, which is to say you're becoming a glorified project manager for big document review. And I don't want to pay you, uh, you know, a, a big hourly rate for you to project manage essentially a bunch of people doing that. Because uh, I don't think that's really the value I get from you. But I pay you a ton of money for your expertise, your advice, and your judgment on assessing the whole litigation portfolio. And and I don't, I don't think lawyers see that as the opportunity that I think it could be. because So that's a way to change business model is to sort of say, let me look at the whole portfolio and exercise judgment. So that gets us away from automation, obviously, but, but I think that uh, those are the types of models. And if you can go to, uh, uh, you know, me as a potential client, you came up with that proposal, I would go, oh my God, where do I sign up? <laughs> so um, any parting thoughts as we try and close this out? Yeah, I, I, so I think that it's, I think there's a lot of things that lawyers get frustrated with it on technology. I think there's a lot of automation that help would help us on a day to day basis, and some of it we just don't realize. And and so, you know, I mean, spell checking is a form of of and grammar checking; those are forms of mm -hmm. automation. So so there are, there are things we can do, rules and stuff, and and Outlook are ways that we can we can automate. So I, I think it's, I think if you kind of step back and say, are there things that I feel I'm doing that the computer could do better, and can I? That's why I think delegation to computers sort of more interesting way to think about it than automation. So I, I would start to look at the small things and then to say, can I go, okay, so what are other people, what are other business doing? What are the consultants? What are the real estate people? What are they doing, um, you know, in ways that they, they take a lot of volume or they take repetitive tasks and they turn it into a service that people are, are actually willing to, to pay and then say, can I identify some of my clients, especially the long-term ones or the people who seem interested in trying new things? And can I come up with ways to say, hey, let's do an experiment and... 
Um, and let's see how this goes. And maybe we take one of these two approaches and we run them side by side. And whichever comes out less, that's the bill that you pay or we'll give you more flexibility. And then, then I, I think I also go back to the thing where you say, can I at least start having the value conversation with my clients and, and get the feedback and say, what is it that they appreciate about what I do? What bothers them? You know, that sort of thing. And then kind of collaborative with the clients come up with at least a few clients, just some experiments. Because uh, I, I think this is the thing where you just want to do some experiments now. I mean, it's a tough world out there, but um, you know, you can find, you can probably, as long as you try things, I, th- I, th- I think there's hope in moving forward. And you'll, you'll probably get more value out of what you learn than you even have to risk in doing that experiment. Right. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, what's your latest book? Well, uh, Allison Shields and I are uh, working on, and I use the term working in air quotes, <laughs> uh, but we're going to do a new edition of our, our LinkedIn book. Uh, so, uh, I'm so keep an glad- eye out for that. So that'll be a while, but uh, we're working on that. Tom Mile and I keep threatening to do a new version of our collaboration tools book, which is really due for an update. And then, uh, you know, most of my energy is going into uh, uh, the Kennedy Mile Report podcast. That's where I I think Tom and I have great conversations. And and that's really sort of where my thinking about technology really resides in a lot of ways. And and then, uh, you know, as I said, I... We uh, we set this up because I sent you a fan letter because I I think <laughs> I, I think you're doing a, I, I think you've had a run of really great podcasts recently and I, I like your interview style and the the topics and uh, good guests I mean it's sort of Tom and I talk about I mean we have this podcast that was set up as Tom and I just having a way to talk about technology with each other because we never had the time to do that. And we sometimes talk about doing interviews and we never get around to it. But um, I like what you're doing with interviews. And, and so it's sort of made me reconsider whether Tom and I might might start to do a little bit of that in the future. So I I, I really like, I, I do really like what you're doing. And, and as you know, I, I love getting the chance to talk to you whenever I see you. Aw, shucks. <laughs> Feeling is very mutual. <laughs> Dennis, thank you so much for being with us today. Okay, great. This episode of the Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings. It's an interruption kind of drives me crazy, and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because uh, the ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby Receptionists. I've got so-and-so on the phone and they're calling about this. Should I put him through? 
And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person, tell them I'll call them back later, please take a message, or sure, put them through and I'll talk to them. And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So you should check out Ruby and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you. And I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. So go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and find out for yourself. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.